BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. About one in ten workers in the U.S. are part of a union. That's a lot lower than it was back in the mid-20th century, and it's also a lot lower than most rich countries today. This makes it hard to advocate for higher wages and more protections, especially during this pandemic, when people are either getting laid off or putting themselves at risk by working. But worker solidarity didn't just fade away. It was broken. And it means that so many workers today are on their own. During the 70s and 80s, corporate leaders found ways around old labor laws to get even more power over their employees. It's resulted in much lower union membership, but also a lot more part-time work, temp work, and contracting. Today, how worker power and solidarity got smashed. I'm Devin Kadiyama, And I'm Sam Harnett. Welcome to The Bay. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. All this week, we're hearing a special five-part series made by KQED reporter Sam Harnett, sound engineer Chris Hoff, and the Bay's editor, Alan Montecilio. This is the second episode of that series. How We Got Here, Part 2, The Attack on Worker Power. Back when sheltering in place first began in California, I started interviewing essential workers, the people who are keeping life going during the pandemic. I spoke with a lot of workers in grocery stores. Some had unions that were fighting for things like extra hazard pay and time off. And others didn't. I talked to this one worker at a non-unionized store who said they were feeling totally alone. 
one of the things that makes me sad about this is there was a moment when it when this first started where where I I felt a tiny bit of pride. I was like, I feel good that I can sit here and put on a brave face and you know help people stock up on stuff that they need so they can self isolate. The worker asked to be anonymous for fear of retaliation from their managers. They say as the weeks wore on, that feeling of pride faded away and they felt more and more abused. The company was raking in cash. It was having some of the best days it had ever had. But all the workers got was this little discount coupon to use at the store and one extra day off per year. No hazard pay, no protective equipment. My mom made me a couple of cloth masks. The workers said they felt underappreciated, underpaid, and at risk. So some of them at the store started trying to form a union. And so just the idea that there would be someone to look out for us that wasn't just that wasn't just viewing us as, you know, cogs in a big machine that only that they only have to deal with when something's wrong would be great. I would love I, I, I would I would love that. It has been three months since I interviewed this worker, and they still haven't been able to form a union, which could do things like help fight for pay increases, more paid sick leave, and maybe that protective gear that their mom is currently making. Now, unions have a long and complicated history, and they aren't all the same. Like any institution, a union can be corrupted, and some have. There has been graft, unscrupulous leaders, abuse of power, and the establishment of hierarchies that look a lot like the ones in corporations. There has been exclusion and racism and unions that protect their members' interests over those of the public, like with, say, some police unions. But if you look at the major protections and benefits for workers in America, so many of them happen because of union organizing. The eight-hour workday, minimum wage, vacation time, sick pay, social security, stuff that many people take for granted now. Today, most American workers are like that grocery store employee, all on their own. Now, only one in 10 workers is unionized. But in the 50s, when unions were at their peak in this country, one in three Americans were in a union. This decline is the result of a decades-long attack. Like with the removal of benefits, this has been a slow chipping away. And it's been accomplished mostly through the tools in one single piece of legislation that became law over 70 years ago, the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, better known as Taft-Hartley. Taft-Hartley has played a major role in curbing unions in America, and the law was a result of a backlash to growing union power. The story of how this legislation came to be begins in the 1930s, when the country was in the middle of the Great Depression. Conditions for workers were bleak. And out in the country, too, men are asking, what's wrong? What's happening? Farm prices have dropped disastrously, and a man's work no longer brings him a just return. The threat of foreclosure, of losing house and home, spreads through the conservative farmlands, and radical talk is boiling into action. This desperation would lead to a major increase in union power. In 1932, voters chose Franklin Delano Roosevelt over the incumbent Herbert Hoover. FDR won in a landslide, and he brought big Democratic majorities with him in the House and Senate. In his inaugural speech, FDR didn't pull any punches about the desperate state of the country. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce. And the savings of many years and thousands of families are gone. 
more important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence, and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. The solution of the FDR administration was to pass a series of laws that created new government programs, regulated the financial system, and increased benefits and protections for workers. This, of course, was FDR's New Deal. One of the keystones was the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, or the Wagner Act. It was a major win for unions. The law expanded their power to strike and bargain for higher wages. But as soon as the Wagner Act became law, business owners and some politicians attacked it. Over the next two years, there were over a hundred lawsuits filed against striking workers. And eventually, the issue went to the Supreme Court, which upheld the Wagner Act barely. In a series of five to four decisions, the Supreme Court upholds the Wagner Act, and broad New Deal legislation becomes constitutional by the deciding vote of a single justice. This ruling was a huge victory for workers. For the next decade, they would gain more and more leverage, especially after World War II. Soldiers who were returning from the war wanted better treatment, pay, and benefits on the job. So they joined unions and went on strike. Over 4 million Americans were involved in strikes between 1945 and 1946. It was known as the Great Strike Wave. This was the closest the U.S. had ever come to a nationwide general strike. In 1946, there actually was a general strike in Oakland. Business owners and conservative politicians were terrified of a working-class uprising. Western Electric employees swelled the growing total of striking workers throughout the country. Thousands of New York telegraph workers also walk out and picket Western Union buildings, crippling telegraphic communications. These strikes worried a lot of voters, too. And before FDR died in 1945, he'd already lost some of the support he had for the New Deal. More Republicans and pro-business Democrats had gotten elected to Congress. And other Democratic Party leaders, they pushed FDR to choose a more moderate vice president, Harry Truman, who became president after FDR's death. These changes in Congress provide the opening to water down the Wagner Act. In 1947, Republican Senator Robert Taft and Congressman Fred Hartley introduced a bill to curb union power. Here's Taft. The Taft-Hartley Act was written for only one purpose, to restore justice and equality in labor management relations. This bill had a lot of support in Congress, which had gotten more conservative since the beginning of the New Deal era. Labor leaders, they knew this law would be a huge blow if it passed. Washington is under a virtual state of siege during the closing hours of the Taft-Hartley labor bill fight as forces of labor staged last-minute demonstrations to defeat the measure. Taft-Hartley has a number of provisions to hurt workers. First, it makes a bunch of strike actions illegal, like solidarity strikes, political strikes, and wildcat strikes. These are the kind of tactics that had helped get the 8-hour workday and the 40-hour work week. It also limited who could join a union, preventing independent contractors, managers, and supervisors from taking part. When the bill made it through Congress, President Truman vetoed it. He wasn't as pro-labor as FDR, but he still thought this bill went too far. The Taft-Hartley bill is a shocking piece of legislation. Even so, the law passed easily. Most of the Democrats in Congress abandoned Truman and sided with Republicans. The House promptly overrides the veto by a four-to-one vote. As bad as Taft-Hartley was for unions at the time, the story would get worse for workers in the long run. Because inside Taft-Hartley, 
there are all kinds of weapons that could be used against unions. For instance, the law made it a lot easier for executives to replace striking workers and stop them from organizing unions at all. It also allowed state lawmakers to pass legislation that undermined union solidarity. But for decades after Taft-Hartley was passed, the provisions in it weren't really used to their fullest extent. They were kept in check by public opinion and by the fact that the economy was doing well for both workers and business owners. But all that changed in the 1980s, when there was a major turning point in the weaponization of Taft-Hartley. It happened in the morning of August 3rd, 1981. The Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, had been negotiating a new contract with the Federal Aviation Administration for more than six months. But talks had broken down over a 32-hour work week, $10,000 more in pay per year, and earlier retirement. Nearly 13,000 air traffic controllers went on strike. Our members are prepared to do whatever is necessary. They are, they are aware of the consequences, and uh, jail is one of those that they are, uh, uh, one of those consequences. Just hours later, President Ronald Reagan came out on the lawn of the Rose Garden to make an announcement. This morning at 7 a.m., the union representing those who man America's air traffic control facilities called a strike. TV news crews were streaming Reagan's speeches to houses across the nation. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty th this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. End of statement. There's a part of Taft-Hartley that says presidents can order workers back to the job if they consider the strike a threat to national security. Reagan was invoking this law. Most of the air traffic controllers didn't back down. They refused to go back to work. 48 hours later, the federal government fired almost all of them. And just two months after that, the Federal Labor Relations Authority decertified the air traffic controllers union. It no longer exists. This moment was a test of worker power. Would an American president face backlash for going on national TV and publicly attacking a union like this? Would this make it harder for him to win re-election? The answer was a resounding no. The FAA hired new air traffic controllers, business went back to normal, and three years later, the public re-elected Ronald Reagan. Four more years! Four more years! Four more years! Thank you. I, uh, I think that's just been arranged. Now, in the decades before the 80s, presidents had fought with unions. They'd even used Taft-Hartley to order people on strike back to work. But they'd never done it like Reagan did. Listen to how deferential Richard Nixon is in this TV announcement he made about postal workers who were on strike in 1970. From the time I came to Congress 23 years ago, I have recognized that the hundreds of thousands of fine Americans in the mail service, the post office department, are underpaid and they have other legitimate grievances. And then when the longshoremen went on strike a little later, Nixon waited almost a hundred days before invoking Taft-Hartley to make them return to work. A few years later in 1977, when Jimmy Carter was president, he tried to use Taft-Hartley for a coal miner strike. The workers ignored it, and they weren't fired. This is why Reagan's decision was so shocking. 
Just four years later, he went on national TV and publicly threatened to fire more than 10,000 workers just 48 hours after they went on strike. Taft-Hartley had never been used as publicly or as aggressively as this. There are a few reasons why it was different this time. First, the U.S. was in a recession and government budgets had been cut. Second, the public didn't sympathize with PACO's demands for more pay, a shorter work week, and early retirement. In a Gallup poll taken just a few days after Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, 59% of Americans said they approved of how he handled the issue. But this specific decision with one union, it had giant ripple effects. When Reagan showed that he could attack unions so directly, it opened the floodgates. Managers and executives began to use Taft-Hartley to go after the employees organizing in their workplaces. You don't have to be a president to use Taft-Hartley to crush worker power. And from the 80s onward, employers started using parts of this law to do just that. There are three major ways Taft-Hartley was leveraged against unions after Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. First, the suppression of strikes through fear. Before the 80s, there was a lot of social pressure against even temporarily replacing workers on strike. But after Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, workers became afraid that managers and executives could not only temporarily replace them, but replace them for good, and that politicians, judges, and the public would side with their bosses. Second, business owners lobbied states to pass laws that make it harder for unions to collect dues. Taft-Hartley legalized these laws, which have been problematically branded as right-to-work legislation. These laws mean that even if management at a company has a contract with a union, it can still bring on new workers who don't pay union dues. These laws deal a major blow to worker solidarity because they undermine the finances of a union. More and more states have passed these laws. Michigan, a state considered a cradle of the union movement, today struck a blow against organized labor. That was in 2012. Wisconsin passed the law in 2015. More drama in Madison as the state Senate votes on the controversial right-to-work bill. The legislation passed... These laws now exist in 27 states. And third... Taft-Hartley allows managers to force workers to watch anti-union propaganda on the job. Companies started hiring production studios to make videos to show new workers. And today, these videos are just a normal part of onboarding at America's biggest employers, like Amazon. We are not anti-union, but we are not neutral either. We do not believe unions are in the best interest of our customers, our shareholders, or most importantly, our associates. Our business Here's an anti-union video shown to workers at Walmart. Now, you might have heard stories on the news, read about it in the paper, or seen it on the internet, but labor unions are really interested in Walmart and have spent millions of dollars specifically focused on us. Now, I think you know by now that our company prefers to have open and direct communication with our associates. We don't think that a labor union is necessary here. And because our associates... And here's another one from Target. We're a Target because we're a threat to unions. The unions that represent grocery store workers. When we take business away from unionized grocery stores, that means they need fewer employees. And fewer grocery store employees mean fewer union members. And fewer members? Well, that's a problem for the union business. That's right. I said business. Union business. Over the decades, Taft-Hartley has been used more and more to chip away at union power. For workers, the decline of unions is one reason wages have stayed mostly flat for 50 years. How flat? Well, just look at the federal minimum wage. 
Adjusted for inflation, it was $12 an hour at its peak in 1968. Today, it's just $7.25 an hour. With the attack on unions and the suppression of wages, income inequality continues to rise. At the same time business owners have been using Taft-Hartley more and more aggressively, politicians haven't updated the remaining worker protections established by the Wagner Act back in 1935. The point is that almost any piece of regulation of business gets worn down over time and needs to be upgraded and reformed. Uh, If you don't get that, it becomes uh, relatively meaningless. This is Larry Mitchell. He was president of the Economic Policy Institute for 15 years. In the late 70s, Larry had a glimmer of hope that lawmakers would take a step to protect workers. June 1978. A bill called the Labor Reform Act was on the floor of the Senate. And I was standing in the lobby of the Senate when it happened. The bill proposed modest changes. That would have made, uh, corrected some of the problems in union organizing and and made it uh, easier for unions to organize. Democrats thought they finally had the votes for one law to help out unions. But then came Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, who was in his first term at the time. He led a long filibuster to sink the proposal. Larry says since the New Deal, federal lawmakers have not passed a single major pro-union piece of legislation. Because politicians have not updated laws to protect unions, it's made it a lot easier for business owners to get around the legal protections for them that do exist. Here's one really clear example of how this happens. The Wagner Act makes it illegal to fire workers just for trying to start a union. You can't say, hey, you know what? You're trying to organize, I'm gonna fire you. But in the 80s, big companies realized they could still basically fire organizing workers by gaming the court system. They'd fire the workers and then use their deep pockets to draw out court cases for years. And they felt safe that public outcry wouldn't hurt business enough to make it so it wasn't worth doing. Here's Larry Mitchell again. There's really no penalty for employers to violate the law, to, to fire people uh, for trying to unionize even though that's their legal right. The penalty for that is basically after you win a case, which would take three, five, seven years, the employer is responsible for giving you your job back and paying you back pay. This is a calculation that works out for business owners. Maybe they'll win some court cases, lose others, but in the end, it's all cheaper than having to fight a union. And it discourages workers from organizing in the first place. Because what worker who got fired and lost their income for trying to start a union could afford to wait years in court for justice? Between business owners expanding Taft-Hartley and politicians failing to pass new legislation to protect workers, unions have declined severely. Now, stronger unions won't suddenly fix everything for workers, but not having them at all, that's left many essential workers right now increasingly on their own. Remember the grocery store worker we talked to in the beginning? They just want to know that a union has their back. And so just the idea that there would be someone to look out for us that wasn't just that wasn't just viewing us as, you know, cogs in a big machine that only that they only have to deal with when something's wrong would be great. I would love I, I would I would love that. Coming up and the idea is that it used to be everybody who worked for a company actually was an employee of that company. 
Managers and executives have turned more and more full-time employees into contractors, part-timers, temps, and gig workers. This is how workers can end up doing the jobs of full-time employees, but not getting the protection and benefits that comes with employee status. In just a minute, we're going to talk about how this fissuring of the workplace happened. In 1934, workers staged a general strike in San Francisco. This is news coverage from a British program called Movie Tone News. Conditions in San Francisco get worse before they get better. Constant clashes on the waterfront between dockers and police. A general strike of all unionists in the city. Paralysis of the public services. This scene shows the police using tear gas bombs to disperse strikers. Three are dead and a hundred injured in the riots. The general situation is so bad that the National Guardsmen or volunteer militia have to be called out to patrol the dockside area. Extreme measures of protection gradually restore order. And in the event, the general strike is called off. In 1977, Chris Tilley got a job after college working at a hospital. I worked in uh, central sterile processing, uh, sort of putting together surgical kits and sterilizing them. There was something very peculiar about Chris's hospital by today's standards. Everyone who worked at the hospital was actually an employee of the hospital. The cafeteria was run by the hospital, by the dietary department, the same people that brought the meals to the, the patients. The, the janitors were all in-house. Uh, the maintenance people were in-house. Not to mention that you didn't have uh, the kind of uh, temp agencies for nurses and various kinds of professionals. Today, this would most likely not be the case. Lots of workers like janitors and cafeteria staff would be part-time, subcontractors, or temps, not full-time employees. This shift was already starting to happen when Chris left his hospital job in 1982. And it was happening everywhere else in the economy as well. At manufacturers, accounting firms, software companies, hotels, restaurants. Chris says this is known as the fissuring of the workplace. Now you've got a bunch of people doing work for the company but in different statuses, whether it's actually working for a temp agency, whether it's working for a subcontractor, whether it's actually being an independent contractor or a gig worker. Chris says fissuring can also be more subtle and harder to spot. Like the franchising that you know McDonald's and the big uh, fast food chains use. You might be thinking, wow, this guy who used to sterilize surgical kits in the 1980s, he knows a lot about labor. Well, Chris is now a labor economist and professor of public policy at UCLA. Chris is going to lead us through why and how executives fissured their workplaces. The why is simple. It makes companies money and it breaks up solidarity between workers. So first, the money. Contractors are way cheaper than employees because a company doesn't have to pay Social Security, overtime, or workers' compensation. And by rotating temporary workers in and out, they don't have to deal with employees pushing for raises after years on the job. And a really big saving of all of this comes from denying benefits. 
This goes back to America tying its safety net so tightly to employment. If you're not a full-time employee, then you may be denied health insurance, retirement plans, and other benefits. Now, when it comes to worker solidarity, fissuring has a big impact. If everyone is a full-time employee at a company, then they're all in the same boat. In a fissured workplace, suddenly everyone has a different deal. There are temp workers who are there only for a short time. Then there are the part-timers who don't get any of the employee benefits. Then you have outsourced workers in different offices or even in other countries. All these different classes of workers have different perks, different grievances, different employers even. All this makes it way less likely that they'll be able to organize into a union. And if the company makes the workers independent contractors, well then, because of Taft-Hartley, they're actually barred by law from joining a union. Chris says starting in the late 70s, big business started developing more and more ways to increase profits by fissuring their workplace. Now, the 1970s were a tough time for the economy. The U.S. was facing more competition from other countries like Germany and Japan. Both unemployment and inflation were high. These pressures of globalization and the situation with the domestic economy were a main way executives justified cutting costs. They sold the concept of competitiveness and the idea that uh, globally, U.S. companies have to be competitive. That means that the companies have to get leaner or meaner. Chris says this was true in some industries, like car manufacturing, where Japanese companies like Toyota were fissuring their workplaces. But Chris says the argument that international competition forced U.S. companies to do this, it gets overstated. Many of the industries that led the way in fissuring the workplace, they weren't even facing much overseas competition. Actually, they were industries that benefited from the increased tourism of globalization. The leading edge was retail and restaurants and hotels. That's where you saw the change happening first, and they sort of pointed the way for other companies. Chris says there were three main phases of this fissuring that have been increasing over the last 50 years. Each one started in a different industry and then was adopted across the entire economy. First was that part-time employment grew. Cut employee hours, cut their benefits. Chris says the retail industry led the way in moving more workers to part-time. Then temporary employment grew. Only give workers short-term contracts. Chris says insurance and other white-collar industries pioneered temping. And then subcontracting grew. Subcontract out entire departments or projects. You can even send them to other countries with weaker labor laws where you can pay them even less. This was big at tech companies like Kodak, Hewlett Packard, Microsoft, and now Google. Fissuring the workplace can take all kinds of other less obvious forms. Chris mentioned fast food companies. Every McDonald's fast food worker doesn't actually work for the McDonald's corporation. They work for whomever owns the McDonald's location, the franchisee. So the entire McDonald's workforce, it's broken up between all these different owners. All of this fissuring makes it easier for business owners to profit by taking pay and benefits from workers and shifting the risk of uncertainty onto them. If there's a downturn in the economy or a crisis, well then they don't have to deal with as many full-time employee contracts. They can just let the temps and subcontractors go. Now, as for how companies fissured the workplace, well, like the removal of benefits and suppression of unions, there wasn't a big national debate and high-profile laws passed at the federal level. Instead, it was a long subterranean process. Chris says managers and executives did a lot of trial and error to find ways to get around labor law. There was an experimentation process and a learning process that didn't always necessarily require a political shift or a shift in laws, just saying, 
huh, we could do this. We could get away with this. There's nothing stopping us from doing this. The story of white-collar subcontracting is a prime example of how this happens. There are laws against misclassifying workers as contractors, so you don't have to pay things like overtime or workers' compensation. But even with those laws, tech companies started subcontracting a lot of workers in the 80s and 90s. One of the most high-profile and egregious examples at that time was Microsoft. Hello, I'm Bill Gates, chairman of Microsoft. In this video, you're going to see the future, Windows. In the 80s, Microsoft started hiring lots of workers as independent contractors. And even though these workers were doing the same jobs as full-time employees, they weren't given employee benefits like health care, paid vacations, sick leave, or stock options. They also got different orientations, email addresses, and they had to wear different colored badges. This is still super common at big tech companies today like Google. I've interviewed a lot of workers over the years about their special badges. This person, like most of the workers I've talked to, wanted to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation. I actually hide my badge. Um, I keep it in my back pocket. And uh, I, uh, I get real pissy when someone mailed it like, where's your badge? Where's your badge? So back in the late 80s, Microsoft was making tons of money by denying workers employee benefits and protections. It also made money by perma-temping workers, keeping them in temp positions for years. In 1989, the IRS busted the company for misclassifying employees. The workers, they then followed up in 1992 by filing a class action lawsuit. It took them eight years in court, and they finally won. But this win was really just a temporary one because managers and owners at other companies across the economy, they learned from Microsoft's mistakes so they could keep on subcontracting and temping workers. Pradeep Chauhan used to work in staffing at Microsoft in the 90s. I interviewed him a few years back about contracting and temping at modern day tech companies like Google and Amazon. After the lawsuit and after Microsoft lost, Every contingent staffing department in any, every large company kind of started setting up rules around how to best utilize contractors. Companies make sure their temp workers and subcontractors are shifted around on a regular basis to different teams, different positions, even different companies. That way, it's harder to argue in court that they are being misclassified. Back when I did this story, I'd never even heard of the term fissuring the workplace. But this all fits right into the pattern of what Chris Tilley talked about, how companies use trial and error to create more temporary, non-full-time work. I did another story at around the same time about a different tactic companies have to get around paying for employee benefits and protections. That tactic is something called a mandatory arbitration clause. Now, mandatory arbitration clauses force workers to resolve any issues like worker misclassification one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors, without a judge and without the public knowing about it. This makes it a lot harder for class action lawsuits like the one against Microsoft in 1992 from ever gaining steam. If you're misclassified, the best you could hope for is a settlement, and then the company could just continue misclassifying other workers. More and more companies are making workers sign these mandatory arbitration clauses as a condition of employment. Here's a worker at Google reading the arbitration clause in her contract. She also wanted to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation. In consideration of my assignment with Google and its promise to arbitrate all disputes, I agree that, except as provided below, Google and I waive any right to a judge or jury trial on any dispute. 
Since that story, Google employees successfully forced the company to make them stop signing mandatory arbitration clauses. But it's still common practice at many companies. Now when I listen back to this story about the Google workers, I can see how well it fits into this long history of companies experimenting to find loopholes around labor protections. As I learned in the story back then, mandatory arbitration, it wasn't even originally intended to be used to resolve disputes between workers and employers. When the Federal Arbitration Act was passed in 1925, it was for corporations. They used it to settle contract disputes with each other. But starting in the 1980s, a series of Supreme Court cases expanded it to consumers and workers. It's really a relatively new practice. Sanjukta Paul is a law professor at Wayne State University. In the early 90s, arbitration clauses applied to just a few percent of workers. Now, they apply to over half of all U.S. workers. This is a condition of working and therefore a condition of making a living. And the more that this becomes the industry practice, the more that that's the case, that you don't really have choice. This is how things just become the way they are. So suddenly to get a job, you've got to sign away your right to court. And what used to be a full-time job with benefits is now part-time, temporary, or gig work. You're out there, all on your own, fissured from your fellow workers. Today, the fissured workplace is all around us, and it's making life difficult for so many workers during the pandemic. Over half the workforce at Google are not full-time employees, and the company has already rescinded contracts during the pandemic to thousands of temp workers. The contractors at places like Facebook and Apple, well, they don't get the same kind of health insurance, paid time off, or privileges to work from home that the employees get. And gig companies like Uber and Lyft haven't paid a dime into state unemployment funds for their hundreds of thousands of drivers, which the companies have classified as independent contractors. So many essential workers right now are doing the jobs of full-time employees. They're out there delivering packages, driving people around, bagging groceries, picking up the phone when you call tech support. But even though they're doing the jobs of employees, they aren't getting the benefits and protections that are guaranteed to employees by law. Next time. The world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. These days, when a company makes a lot in profits, there's a good chance that money will go to shareholders instead of workers. Tomorrow, we'll talk about how this world of shareholder capitalism became normal. If you want to read up more on the history of unions and their future, check out Bill Fletcher's book, Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Towards Social Justice. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. In 2013, Sam Harnett was driving Lyft for a project he was working on. At around 11.45 at night, he picked up a passenger downtown. They started talking. The guy started telling him that he was a workaholic, then all this stuff about his childhood. When they got to the guy's house, he asked Sam if he could leave the meter running. He just wanted to keep talking. 
They drove for over two hours. Yeah, I'll go up to like Twin Peaks or something and drive around. Cool. So, growing up, I never quite felt like normal. You know, I went to like a small private school. I didn't take school very serious, you know, like grades wise and stuff. Uh, I never felt normal. I never felt like I could fit in. So if I couldn't fit in, I guess I just have to be better than everyone because then you'd have to respect me, right? I had a period where I was literally working at least 12 hours a day. And when I, you know, people throw out like 12 hours, but this is like running around, hustling, like on your feet, not sitting at a desk, not checking Facebook, like doing so many things for 12 hours a day. You know, you're having your dinner with your ESPN, but your laptop's up and you're cranking out emails and looking at numbers and answering questions for people who reach out to you at, you know, late at night. And What kind of work is it? It's like, uh, sales management. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like endless amount, right? Yeah. It's literally endless. I mean, yeah. it's like you can have like a quota and just hit your quota, but who's in sales just to hit quota? You know, that's not how the game works. You're not in sales if you're in it just to hit quota. But honestly, it's just money. You know, it's like when I go out, you know, I have a better car than you. You know, I have a better apartment. I dress better than you. My watch says I'm worth more than you. My belt says I'm worth more. You know, my shoes, my jeans, my whole outfit. You know, it just says that I'm doing well. You know, I have name brands, but they're not necessarily sticking out, you know. But if you pay attention, you see the eagle on my jeans uh, or the little symbol for uh, Armani, you know. And it's like I know someone eventually is going to see that, you know, and I know they're going to see my $200 boots, you know, and my jackets. And I just have to have that feeling of knowing that I'm doing better. You know, people think there are, you know, people say success. A lot of that's based on luck, you know, is it, or is there just a certain way of doing things that some people figure out how to do it and others don't, you know, it's like, there's a set of algorithms with, predetermined outcomes and if you can recognize that you can pick the right algorithm to have the outcome you know that that's how I feel uh, life is life is just an equation if X then Y and if you know what your Y is if you know what your end goal is then all you have to do is plug in you know different things for X and eventually your if X will equal Y and you can do that with anything with any scenario any equation any opportunity whatever you want I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.com. 
org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.